everybody. It's Nick. It is not Let's Not Talk About Work, uh, which is why you just heard Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, uh, which will be the theme song for my new show, which after this episode will be in a separate feed. It's called How Wrestling Explains the World. Uh, it is The reason I have it on this feed um, is because it is a spinoff of this show. Uh, Dave, Gibb, and I, about two episodes ago, did uh, competition cooking as the his thing he's into is a his topic we decided to discuss and in doing that we realized this idea of talking about the wrestlingness of things is a uh, probably a good idea for a podcast um this episode is going to be a little different than the rest of the episodes also gonna be a lot longer uh an hour and 20 minutes so be prepared for that it in the episode uh this episode in particular though we discuss it in the episode um we break down what wrestling is and what it isn't and the ways in which it inform the our fandom as a culture of wrestling informs or is informed by the way in which we act with all other forms of culture. We're not going to spend that much time on wrestling. So if you're worried about, oh my God, they're going to talk about wrestling the entire time. Mostly we talk about, um, spoiler alert, abstract expressionism, uh, realism, modernist literature, cinema, television, politics, reality television, everything. I, we spend a lot more time talking about the culture than we spend time talking about wrestling. Um, that is not a coincidence. It's not an accident. Uh, we will be going forward mostly talking about the goal is to essentially uh, allow people who don't like wrestling to learn more about wrestling and for people who only know wrestling to learn more about real life. I hope you like it. Uh, if not, don't worry. Uh, it will be in a separate feed going forward. And uh, next week, I will be back with a new guest. And going forward, I will be releasing Let's Not Talk About Work every other week uh, to coincide both with the uh, episodes of How Wrestling Explains the World, which, again, are going to be on a separate feed, but also because it's really hard to find that many guests when you're not a professional show. And I am nothing of a professional. So uh, I hope you enjoy this. Uh, if not, I apologize. And I promise next week we will be back with a great guest uh, who I am actually planning on interviewing today. Though, who knows? Uh, things happen. Um, but yeah, uh, see you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, something that has gone undaunted in our society for a number of years is the type of music that our youth listen to. I'm going to require that they listen to classical music. Beethoven and Bach, that's what would it boon their intelligence. This rock and roll garbage has had a deleterious effect on our society for a number of years. Just look at the crime rate. It should be abolished immediately. Hello and welcome to Ruda. Wait, no, it's not Ruda Radio. Uh, let's not talk. No, no, no. This is how wrestling explains the world which is a, a podcast about which I am very excited. Uh, I am here with my co-host. I know and love him. You will soon know and love him if you don't already. He has written for WrestleDelphia. He has written for Mystery Weekly. He has he is a freelance writer of education things. The basic idea we have for this show, uh, outside of this episode, which we'll explain more in a minute, is uh, we're, we have a guy who is a WWE Hall of Famer as a president. Uh, and that's always been weird to me, and I've never quite figured out how to, like, jibe that with the fact that I've been watching wrestling since I was three. So we 
had recorded a podcast for those of you who are listening on the Let's Not Talk About Work feed about competition cooking. And uh, we spent about a quarter, maybe a half of that episode talking about the ways in which competition cooking shows are like wrestling. And uh, I think you and I, Dave, both had a, like an epiphany, like, oh shit, this is like a really good idea for a podcast. Yeah, I couldn't tell if I had uh, killed your existing podcast or if we had together birthed something new. <laughs> so I, I, at first I, I was seriously concerned, but but look what we've done. What this episode is going to be, uh, the rest of the episodes are going to focus on individual topics. This episode in particular, we are going to talk about things uh, in order, uh, descending order of how wrestling they are, how much wrestling is involved in them. Um, there's one that we, I, I think in particular, works perfectly as the like way to start this <laughs> off. And it's not despite the origins of this reality television. Because as far as I'm concerned, I think as far as, you're concerned, Dave. They're basically the same thing. They're just shot differently. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's not always a violent physical confrontation on reality television. Only like half the time. So that's tuned down a little. But yeah, it's it's really structured pretty much the same <laughs> and feels the same oftentimes. Yeah, I, and there's examples over and over again of, of people on reality television playing the face or the heel. Uh, Dave had mentioned uh, a crazy story with Johnny Fairplay, right? Right, right. Yeah, one of the uh, early seasons of Survivor. I mean, Johnny Fairplay, uh, he was a guy who who faked that his grandmother had died to get sympathy uh, with the fellow people in the tribe at one point. Uh, I'm not the biggest Survivor head, so I'm only giving you like the rough notes here. But uh, so he, he had said that his grandmother died and got all this sympathy, uh, but it was totally a lie. And in fact, it had been planned to some degree ahead of time by he and um, Bruce Mitchell, who's a longtime columnist for the Pro Wrestling Torch and who also uh, is kind of in one of those original kind of cliques of smart fans there who started in the Greensboro area. But he and Fairplay had planned this as wrestling fans, as like a heel wrestling angle to do on reality TV. So just a few years into reality TV, uh, wrestling had, had uh, seen itself there already. Yeah, and there's a difference between the reality television of like documentary style things and the reality television of what's essentially scripted, but scripted in the sense of they're telling the lives of these people that they have manufactured to a large extent. And then they're taking that manufactured life that they're filming and editing it down into a specific story where I think that's where it slightly differs from wrestling, but there's not enough of like, there's no space between it really uh, at all uh, from competition cooking shows to uh, keeping up with the Kardashians. Everything's built on this idea of, both confrontation and personas, it's like you're fighting through a mech almost. Yeah, I see what you mean. I definitely think that in some way, a lot of the reality shows, they are, um, they're like pushing a lifestyle, like keeping up with Kardashians is a great example, right? Or even the competition cooking shows are selling you a lifestyle, this kind of fine dining, you know, going out to restaurants every weekend kind of deal. Whereas pro wrestling, like, you don't believe, or I would say 99% of wrestling fans don't believe that the wrestling world is one, you know, that they're going to live in, where, where this is a lifestyle that they actually aspire to. They're not going to be calling people out in the ring to solve their problems or anything like that. Whereas, you know, I think reality TV is way more realistically aspirational than pro wrestling. And pro wrestling is pretty aspirational, so like that's saying a lot. Yeah, it's aspirational. I don't think it's realistic at all. Um, yeah, exactly. 
And and yeah, I, I think. But uh, before we get to the the thing that we uh, we didn't vote because it's just the two of us, but I guess we agreed is the most wrestling. Uh, we wanted to do a quick explanation for people who aren't wrestling fans, which I get the feeling is especially if you're going to be listening to us on the let's not talk about work feed uh you might not be a wrestling fan so um just a real quick explanation i personally uh was once paid to write an article called how to watch professional wrestling so i just want to give a quick like what i wrote in there so i'm not like i i'm quoting myself can i can i say that when a college professor required us to read his scholarship in class you made a great complaint about it but continue (laughs) Well, I wasn't, no one's paying to, (laughs) I was paying to go to school. (laughs) Also, I didn't like uh, my film class. So that was, that was more of a, uh, as, as you may find out uh, a couple of times during the history of this show, I hated college, but liked going to college. So, (laughs) Um, but anyways, uh, professional wrestling is a lot of things. It's a live action stunt show. It's a theater in the round, uh, if that theater in the round were wearing sporting event as a costume, uh, it's like a quasi imaginary fighting league. Uh, it, like they're the WWE itself. Uh, and also actually less so the WWE than like a TNA um, is an, uh, they are there to like fight and be the best in a like, underneath this single umbrella it's more so uh especially with like a show like lucha underground they're literally like in a a fighting club um where the wwe is more of just like your work for the nfl or ufc um and it's presented on television uh, as though sports night were written and performed by the cast of american gladiators uh did i miss anything that wrestling is i would throw morality play out there that's definitely something it has been at various times and we can in various episodes moving forward, I'm sure talk about how that's evolved or degraded or changed over time. But I would say at various times, wrestling has really been sort of a working class morality play. Oh yeah. A hundred percent, especially um, in the, the early 1950s uh, when it was first becoming popular on television, uh, like in the twenties when Jim Landos was involved, um, it was like, he was good looking and everybody else was ugly. So like, it has evolved for the better, I think, but not by much. Like, um, the, now the bad guys are the good-looking ones, I guess would be the only difference. Um, <laughs> but yeah, morality play is really important because it's a pretty, at least, okay, so, and this is something we talked about off-air. WWE is usually what people mean when they talk about professional wrestling, but we won't always be talking about the wwe there's a couple of different styles there's uh the lucha libre style from mexico um there is strong style from japan and there's a couple of different styles the world of sport style from england and all of these are varying degrees Uh, lucha libre is probably the least realistic is that fair to or least yeah has the least verisimilitude is that i think a better way to say it Sure, unless you're counting the stuff that's like outwardly intended as comedy, like some of the stuff they do in like DDT in Japan. But but for but for the sake of explanation, I would say yeah, of the kind of main styles going on here in North America, lucha libre is the most performative. Yeah, and then you have um, Japan's strong style, which is pretty realistic. They uh, especially like uh, certain 
uh, weight classes and certain uh, championships, like the open weight never the never open weight championship in New Japan, <laughs> is essentially like a shoot championship. They just beat the shit out of each other. Big scary mean guys. It's the big scary mean guy league. Yeah, and then you have uh, well, it's not really the case anymore, though it does have a burgeoning scene. Uh, the world of sports style of English wrestling, which is a uh, more of like a it feels closer to amateur wrestling but it's it's almost as performative as lucha libre in its like, own it's it's equal parts straight up amateur european style wrestling and also like circus inspired tumbling it's 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 two very disparate things brought together in kind of a very um it's a very very smooth style and um, a lot of like working in and out of holds and sort of long exchanges of holds and then a lot of running around. So it's kind of bringing two divergent styles together, both super realistic and super uh, like, like Tumblr inspired and bringing them together. Yeah. It can get very dancey, which I think is like, Oh, especially if you're doing like reversals of moves and stuff like that. Right. They literally do that like whip reversal, do si do coming out of the corner where the two guys link arms and then move around clockwise in the ring and then run out towards other corners. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and those are the, this, the major styles outside of the U S the U S in particular has, it's, it's difficult to explain without spending a half an hour on it. So we'll try to do it succinctly. Um, Basically, uh, the WWE, which was a very showy, very um, Hollywood, I guess, very manufactured style of wrestling, basically took over all of the other wrestling, all of the territorial, smaller wrestling promotions, which had different regional styles. Some of that is, to be honest, Vince McMahon's, I don't want to call it business acumen, but... uh, ruthlessness does that like i think that's a better description what would well he would call it ruthless aggression right yeah basically he went uh with the money from being in the new york market and bought out all of the stars of the other companies um from under them it was a kind of an understood thing before that point that you just didn't raid other people's talent also even more so on the business end it was about uh, previously, wrestling television had been on a barter deal where uh, the, neither the station the station wouldn't pay the wrestling promotions for the show, but the wrestling promotions wouldn't pay the station for airtime either. Instead, they would share the commercial time. They would split the commercial money, and that way, the wrestling promotion could be on air for free, and the 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 uh, this channel could have original programming for free. But Vince came in and he offered those program directors money for the time, and then the promoters who had been on just these handshake barter deals where it was a break even, uh, you know, suddenly the program directors were giving that time to Vince McMahon for money. So it was stealing the talent, or I should say luring away the talent and also luring away the program directors at those local television stations. Oh yeah, uh, they, they straight up, uh, as far as I'm concerned, stole. <laughs> like, not the talent. I think the talent was much more of a, like, they should have been paid better. They There were pretty unscrupulous things done in terms of... Uh, because the the agency of the wrestlers, I think, changes the dynamic. Where like working with these cable companies, he was just like fuck everybody else that I'm wor- uh, that I'm working against. I'm here to destroy them, and I think that gets conflated with the style of wrestling. And and, and I said this to you beforehand, and and you pushed back a little bit. I being from New York, always grew up around 
WWE. And to me, it always just made more sense the WWE won over, let's say, WCW. But you didn't grow up watching, as far as I know, I mean, when we first started talking about wrestling, you mentioned like Chris Jericho and stuff like that. You seem to be more into the WCW style, which like no one in New York was. No one watched WCW over WWE. They would watch WCW, but it was clearly the second choice well i grew up just south of san francisco and wcw ran the cow palace for big shows Mm -hmm. so if you look at a lot of their pay-per-views at the 90s a lot of them were at the cow palace and the cow palace was historically the building for wrestling in san francisco so i guess that was part of them kind of feeling major league in the bay area when i was growing up even though they weren't by any means local you know so i think that was a big factor also growing up on the west coast you could watch both nitro and raw in the same night uh, because of the time difference. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it, you know, I think that there was kind of a feel for you that like the WWE was kind of the home team. Whereas for me, it was like WCW promoted San Francisco, whereas San Jose was more the WWF town. Uh, no. And I, I think that's WWE had such a structural advantage that it, any deficiencies with the product were kind of swept under the rug and I, I think that's something that is honestly parallel to a lot of like the best companies don't necessarily win out. It's the people who can exploit the weaknesses of the system they're in the best. Right. Because wrestling previously had been run on a lot of backdoor politicking and handshaking agreement where there are all these kind of unspoken rules. And he came in with no regard for the unspoken rules and and by by playing by a totally different game than everybody had previously played, he, the the inevitable conclusion was him winning. Weird. I I can't imagine that happening in another walk of life. <laughs> um, no, and I I think I know we're we're joking a little bit. I, I think that's important that like we have a tendency to assume that the thing that won out is the best thing and and yes that's very american very american it's just like why wouldn't you want to win a championship it's because there's other stuff involved in like running a successful organization yes our championship's great but they're not the you can have a successful organization that doesn't win a championship every five years and i and i I think that's a, a as I mean, you're a, a lifelong soccer fan. You come from your father was a soccer player. Mm-hmm. Like it is. Do you does, do you want Liverpool to win the Champions League? Yes, but you're also fine winning like the FA Cup or winning the like. There's a lot of well, that's what's great about soccer. Those high level European soccer. There's lots of different achievements that you can aspire to. So as soon as you miss out on one, you can start looking forward to. That. Yeah, because you just want to have fun watching your thing, and and I. people use wrestling as escapism but the fact that wwe won out over what was a much more again i don't want to say realistic because it's wrestling but the verisimilitude of even now you look at tna relative to wwe but really if you look at early 90s wcw yes they had the super cartoonish um right the jim hurd stuff the jim hurd stuff which, <laughs> which was a television company trying to make a wrestling show as opposed to Vince McMahon, who was a re- ran a wrestling company that made a television show. Yeah, a, re- but, a television company that had put uh, a pizza king in charge. Yes. Jim Hurd had, had made his name in Pizza Hut. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, God bless him. It's just not how you sell wrestling matches. You don't You don't sell them with like licensing gimmicks from your the turner library like 
<laughs> they literally had because I, I don't want to posit the idea that WWE was this cartoonish thing that became what America sees as wrestling. WCW was cartoonish in ridiculous, 10 times more ridiculous ways than the WWE ever was. And I think that's an important distinction because they couldn't understand how to be cartoonish or be realistic, uh, be somewhere in between because the other half of WCW was, um, and it's indicative of a lot of wrestling uh, in the U S very realistic in terms of like how they thought um, it, Bill Watts, for example, he pushed that even farther in the, was it eight late eighties, early nineties, early nineties, early nineties. He changed a bunch of the rules to, to differentiate the product from WWE. Um, they couldn't jump off the top rope. Uh, they got rid of the mats on the side of the ring. And all of this led to a, a, a mutiny of the, of the performers, but B a, a marked difference between WWE and WCW when you watched it. And as much as you would like it to be the case that people went, oh, that's a great alternative. That's not what happened. It it shows it's W wrestling in general is a perfect encapsulation of like what we want capitalism to be and what capitalism actually is. <laughs> I'd never heard it put that way, but that's kind of apt. I like that. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's because we can project everything onto wrestling. Because wrestling is, at its core, two people or two entities. Not even two people, because it's going to be four people in a tag team match. Engaging in a conflict at some point with a bunch of storylines leading up to that conflict. That's it. Like, it's not any more complicated than that. No, and they do it over and over and over again with just different combinations of people and even sometimes the same combinations of people. Yeah, and I think what you realize when you watch wrestling is that the important thing isn't, for wrestling at least, I, I can't speak to our entire existence, but for wrestling at least, the ability to suspend your disbelief was always more important than anything else. And I think we have, as a, from Disney, from a lot of things, um, trained our brains to do that, to to just kind of focus on that. And I don't know if that's like good for our understanding of how real life works. Yeah, I agree. I think in general, we've kind of softened our expectations really ever since uh, TV came into our houses. We've kind of generally been softening our expectations in terms of realism in fact, at this point, there are definitely sometimes where it seems like realism is almost like bad, like that's boring. Like we want shows that present like such complex, grandiose scenarios that we've made daily life just seem kind of boring and we don't accept things that are straightforward anymore. It's kind of like uh, there's two kind of polarizing uh, figures slash thought leaders in the wrestling business, uh, Vince Russo and Jim Cornette. And like uh, Vince Russo's uh, whole uh, overarching thesis about things not being predictable and doing things that are surprising because that's more exciting. And Jim Cornette's uh, whole thesis is just about things should make sense and things should be logical. So like if something's surprising, it should be a surprise that makes sense. And if you look back over things, there were subtle hints and lead-ups to it. Whereas the, the Vince Russo theory is sort of, no, 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 it's more exciting to just do stuff 
We're just going to do stuff because it's a surprise. And we're going to ask questions later. And I think that that kind of represents just general some other clashes in our in our culture, right? It's like, do we just want the thing that's the most exciting and the most cool right now? Or do we want to have some patience and some long sight and, and really plan things out and set up for more uh, satisfying conclusions? Yeah, we don't want to be introspective about anything or and. It's not just that we don't want to be introspective. We don't want to have the opportunity to like be forced to look at ourselves. So we just want constant distraction. Absolutely. That's like the rise of like the platinum age of entertainment is just all about self-distraction. Yeah. It's literally like binge watching, which is something you say about people who take drugs. Like, and we all binge watch, but we, and wrestling in particular is perfect for binge watching. Uh, But Every form of thing that we watch now has to be escapist. It can't be, it can't have a focus on like, again, it's not realism. Life is far too complicated to put into a narrative. It doesn't exist. Like there, there's no narrative arc to our lives. It's just we're... Absolutely. So I, I used to be a writing teacher. And like when I would talk about uh, Campbell and Hero's Journey, people's number one response, like one of the big things people would say right away was like, yeah, but that's like not how things happen, like in real at life. all. Like, and yeah, you know, the, the narrative structure has nothing to do with real life. But yeah, we let it dictate so much that idea that there's a story that needs to be told. And that we don't necessarily have agency over that story. That and this isn't just like a belief in God. It's like a, it's ingrained in who we are as people. Like every time you talk to someone about anything, it's there's like villains and heroes and omniscient narrators that dictate who wins and who loses and it's it, it might not necessarily be god it might be uh corporations or it might be poor people or it might be immigrants which is uh why it's kind of funny and by funny i mean depressing that definitely outside of reality television which is basically the extension of wrestling professional electoral politics is so clearly the most wrestling thing on earth it just it's the one thing that I think combines form and function of wrestling. Like the goal is to get over and win elections or important votes. And you do so through this like performative style of like cutting promos and getting over, getting Getting over. over. Like it's, and you, but so often, and this isn't just like, Oh, well, if a, uh, certain senators against gay people they're secretly gay like it's not just stuff like that it is people who willingly bend themselves to be something they're not in public in order to get elected and and it's i think the the it's become more obvious in the last year not just because of donald trump but because of things like um the way that they did the senate vote was almost like a heel faction making stipulations that only benefited them and then like working the refs in order to make it so that they would come out on top. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is because of wrestling is this like layover of athletics on theater. And what politics has become is this overlay of theater, like policy on theater. It's, 
it's literally become political theater where and wrestling is athletic theater but those things have always been kind of like connected in their own way because they're what we believe to be these meritocracies and they're just not Mm -hmm. and in order to deal with that we kind of allow ourselves to believe in people based on the most like specious of connections to them and and a lot of it is through like the power of the pulpit i guess you would call it especially for presidential uh politics um like if you listen to the speeches people make they're very much like heel and face promos like uh, we're gonna play uh right now um a real quick snippet of a couple of speeches from president obama uh when he was state senator obama in the 2004 uh, Democratic National Convention, and then I'm going to play Dusty Rhodes' Hard Times, and then we're going to come back, we're going to talk about it. It's going to be about two minutes. So, um, here goes. For alongside our famous individualism, there's another ingredient in the American saga. A belief that we're all connected as one people. If there's a child on the south side of Chicago who can't read, that matters to me, even if it's not my child. If there's a senior citizen somewhere who can't pay for their prescription drugs and having to choose between medicine and the rent, that makes my life poorer even if it's not my grandparent. If there's an Arab American family being rounded up without benefit of an attorney or due process, that threatens my civil liberties. It is that fundamental belief It is that fundamental belief, I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper, that makes this country work. With that weight, got what I wanted. Ric Flair, the world's heavyweight champion. I don't have to say a lot more about the way I feel about Ric Flair. No respect, no honor. There is no honor among thieves in the first place. He put hard times on Dusty Rhodes and his family. You don't know what hard times are, Daddy. Hard times are when the textile workers around this country are out of work. They got four or five kids and can't pay their wages, can't buy their food. Hard times are when the auto workers are out of work and they tell them go home. And hard times are when a man has worked at a job 30 years. 30 years, they give him a watch, kick him in the butt, and say, hey, a computer took your place, daddy. That's hard time. That's hard time. I like the second, that's hard times. It really, like, it's a dig in. And the crowd, I cut it off a little bit, but the crowd loses it after he says that. Like, this, both of those promos, because that's what they are, are about, like, the the fundamental truths that unite us. And I think Dusty Rhodes um, in particular really captures it because it, it, at the beginning, before that and and after that, because it's, it's about a three minute uh, speech or promo, he emphasizes the importance he has to those people. And it's self-aggrandizing, but it still allows it to be, it, the way he approaches it allows it to be, still have 
force to it. Uh, like you are much more familiar with this, with the NWA's connection to their fans, but it felt much more visceral than the WWE's. Yeah, well, hearing both of those side by side there, like what really struck me is the way they're both talking about community. And um, I actually, going back a couple of years, I, I wrote this deal uh, when I briefly had my own little blog that was called 500 Words on Wrestling. <laughs> uh, I wrote this little thing about uh, looking at the cartoon Bob's Burgers through the lens of wrestling. And I said that like, they're both about community in some way. Like that's what makes the world of Bob's Burgers so great is there's like a community of people and they all have complementary or uh, uh, correlating roles in some way. And like they all fit together and they're all uniquely weird, but somehow together they make this whole that works. And like, that's what I heard both there in the Obama and the Dusty speeches, this idea, you know, of the power is in us together as a community. And there's people who aren't doing well, individuals that aren't doing well. And maybe sometimes that's us. But like, if we all come together, you know, we can make this work together. And in the Obama speech in particular, they, he does talk a, loud, a lot about outside forces. I don't want to make it seem as though the, Ob the Obama speech is literally about how he should be the first black president. Like it is literally a speech about how he embodies all of the greatness of America. That he is black is secondary in some ways, but it also informs his entire life. It's like he talks about his the skinny kid with a funny name with a father from Kenya. Like it, both of those are ego driven, but they're ego driven sure. in a way that doesn't separate themselves from the people involved. And obviously that's what baby faces do. They bring people together, but I think it highlights what makes it so hard and why more often both in wrestling and in politics, you see people using the politics of dividing people. I'm going to play CM Punk and um, the part of the pipe bomb promo and uh, part of Trump's con convention speech, um, which I have watched way too many fucking times in the last two weeks prepping for this show. But uh, Can I actually ask you a question before we yes, listen to absolutely. these clips here? I just want to ask, because this is sort of a, an evolving theory you've had that you've been talking about for, I don't know, like at least 10 years. Uh, so I just wanted to wonder, like, from your perspective, what makes someone a heel? Like, is being a heel being a sellout, which is something you were kind of alluding to earlier, like standing for other interests and selling out your actual ideals? Or like, is being a heel not agreeing with you? Like, you know, you know and I, I don't mean to ask that question in a uh, dickish manner. Uh, but oh, no, I, no. I just want to know, like, could someone who agrees with you be a political or disagrees with you rather be a political baby face in your eyes? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, I'm actually I, I want to play the speech, the Trump speech in particular, because I'm ac that's actually why I picked the section, because I, gr I agree with what he's saying. <laughs> um, mm. And so, in other words, I actually this is terrible. But from a uh, economic standpoint, I actually didn't disagree policy-wise with Trump on a decent amount of things, considering he is the first person I voted against. Like, I literally had not voted in my life until that point. And it's something I, I kind of regret, um, but I felt that was where I had to draw a line in the sand. So, like, I agreed with his policies. Let me put it this way. I would rather 
not to get off on it. I'd rather Mike Pence be president, and I disagree with all of his politics. <laughs> I think the problem with Trump, and again, I, I don't want to make this like a super political podcast, even though we're no, spending nor I, minutes talking, nor I, is the the way in which he uses true uh, beliefs and not truths to uh make himself get over and, and i'm gonna play uh the both the cm punk and the the trump uh speeches and i i think they'll uh highlight what i mean the reason i'm leaving is you people because after i'm gone you're still gonna pour money into this company i'm just a spoke on the wheel the wheel's gonna keep turning and i understand that but vince mcmahon's gonna make money despite himself He's a millionaire who should be a billionaire. You know why he's not a billionaire? It's because he surrounds himself with glad-handing, nonsensical yes-men like John Laurinaitis, who's going to tell him everything that he wants to hear. And I'd like to think that maybe this company will be better after Vince McMahon's dead. But the fact is, it's, it's going to get taken over by his idiotic daughter and his doofus son-in-law and the rest of his stupid family. <laughs> Sorry, that's just, that's really fucking great. He's an asshole, but that is a great fucking... <laughs> after 15 years of... Doofus was not the best word choice, listening to it again. The, he's a goof troop. <laughs> and uh, here is Trump's part of Trump's convention speech from the uh, 2016 Republican National Convention. After 15 years of wars in the Middle East, after trillions of dollars spent and thousands of lives lost, the situation is worse than it has ever been before. This is the legacy of Hillary Clinton. Death, destruction, terrorism, and weakness. Ooh, yes. They're clapping. <laughs> they turned it into a clap. And it sounds like a Vuzuvela boo on my end. Yeah, they, uh, well, they start off by booing Hillary Clinton. And, and the reason... Uh. The reason I, I wanted to play that specific is because, like I said, I agree with the first half of what he said. But I think the idea that he would say that, and then in the larger context of the speech say, I alone can fix it, speaks to the same things that CM Punk is speaking to, which is this idea that you know better than everybody else. That you are the, the alpha male, the, the big dog, the whatever you want to call it. The idea that it, it, when baby faces talk about community, people whose fundamental goal is to sell t-shirts and sell tickets for their goodness still have goodness in them. It just has to be a specific kind of goodness. I think there is one type of baby face politician. I think there are a thousand different types of heel politician. Uh, even if I were to say disagree with Ronald Reagan's politics, let's say in theory, I have to say he was a babyface. I mean, he was a beloved American politician for his entire, basically his entire presidency. He uh, 
at least made a basic attempt to unite the country. Was it uh, in the language I would like to use? No, I mean, he did reference the Young Bucks, but I don't think he meant the same thing. Um, And then you have uh, someone like LBJ, who's like a hard heel, great politician, but I mean, that's part of being a heel. And then you have somebody who's like a, a dirty play, dirtiest player in the game, like a Mitch McConnell, where they're respected almost by their opponents because of their ability to like get around the system. So, I mean, it's not necessarily bad to be a heel and it's not necessarily, I mean, somebody has to do it and, and, and there's a difference between that and being a villain. And I think that because of the structure of politics and the, and less so politics but government we have created a monster in some ways through our professional wrestleization of politics and i think trump this specific convention speech is like the pipe bomb but in a bad way like in the it, the thing that really broke everything, because people listened to an hour and 15 minute speech about how a guy who had never run for office had never really done anything other than make a billion dollars when he should have been a, a one billionaire when he should have been a two billionaire. No one said this is crazy. No one fact checked the fact that like Vince McMahon is still worth $900 million. Is he a billionaire? No, but he's doing pretty well for himself. And the idea that he could be a billionaire if he just listened to you is probably not true. But <laughs> Well, I mean, I think of Punk. I mean, Punk is or was portraying to some degree like a benevolent fascist, right? I mean, his song was like cult of personality. You know what I mean? Like he he wasn't selling equality. He was selling bask in the light of yes. me. You know, I mean, I think I think he was kind of a benevolent fact. And I think fundamentally that's what if if you go on what he has said publicly, I am not calling Trump a fascist, but he quacks like a fascist. And I think you're right. It is almost this benevolent fascism, but there's no such thing as it. But I think politicians have accepted that truth matters less than belief and that because of that it makes it so that there is no way to challenge it with good baby faces because baby faces need you all to know something and we have created these different worlds and you look at it with someone like john cena john cena is by almost any definition the best person to ever be the top guy. I think that's fair to say. In terms of nice guydom, yeah, sure. Nice guydom, the things he does outside. He is maybe the most hated top guy of all time. Like in terms of his people's the 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 when you say the people, you mean the fans. When when I say that, what I mean is that uh, Hulk Hogan, who is was for people are less familiar with wrestling, was like. He was Ronald Reagan. He was so beloved by people in the 80s. And you watch and it now and it makes no fucking sense. I get what you're saying. So, so yes, yes. In terms of him being like John Cena, Roman Reigns, just like the baby face who's just blatantly not over with a certain percentage, with a, a certain appreciable percentage of people. And I think that is something, that, I think the 
things we have wrought basically in professional wrestling are almost like these like canaries in the coal mine for what's going to happen in electoral politics. So feel free to cut me off if you want to uh, push this discussion to later. But uh, one thing I know we were going to talk about a little further down in the show was just sort of modernism and how wrestling is kind of anti-modernist in some ways. And I think that kind of gets right at what you were just saying, because like I think after World War I, there was this kind of split in the American identity where there were like the there's the working class with the traditional values but then there's the split where sort of the upper middle class became this sort of these sort of modernist thinking class so to speak and like those folks were looking at life as a tableau and then the folks who were kind of in the working class segment of the population were more just still about wanting to live in the tableau unironically you know what i mean and i think that this recent split that we're seeing in politics is sort of uh, those birds coming home to roost, you know, a full century later. Yes. But like I said, I guess more on that later. That we never, we never decided what we wanted America to be. So we just went, we'll figure it out at some point. That's a problem for later America. And now we're later America. Is yeah. that essentially what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, to some degree. And I think that we, yeah, we just had a split in our consciousness where there was like a, there were two ways of looking at the world and we just allowed them to live totally parallel to each other for a full century. And now it's like, no, 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 eventually there's got to be some kind of conflict because yeah, we have to officially define it yeah. finally, which we've been punting on. And I think that is also um, a problem of a lack of imagination in both politics and wrestling. Cause if you look at something like that is very similar to both, well, more so to wrestling, um, is comics, like illustrated fiction, not like stand-up comics, which we will actually be getting to in a little bit. Comics, um, more so when they first came out, uh, were very similarly, um, how do I put this? Uh, unnuanced? Is that the best way to put uh, like early Batman? Not subtle. Not subtle. <laughs> Though I think it is interesting to note that Superman is pretty explicitly a socialist. <laughs> In the first, but he was also written by people who were socialists. So of course he was going to be a socialist, but that's a whole different thing. Superhero comics were allowed to go through a period where they told very specific kinds of stories. For a long time, the comics code limited very much what stories were able to be told through comics, mm -hmm. but they were able to mature as a genre, as a medium in general, to the point where, at this point, most comics... Oh, I would wouldn't say most. Not all comics are superhero comics. And even when you're talking about superhero comics, there's significantly more nuance in the best, or even pretty good comics, than the absolute best wrestling. And it's because the stakes in wrestling are so low. and And I think... What we the same thing happens, an inversion of the same thing happens with politics. The stakes are so unbelievably high, we can only think about them in abstract ways. Where superhero comics and comics in general force us to actually confront something, but do give us a kind of buffer. It's it's animated or it's illustrated. It's not the actual thing. We're not actually seeing people get hurt, but we are seeing the representation of that. And I think that's why superhero comics, 
represent a possible way for both politics and wrestling to have developed that they just didn't because we never accepted the stakes involved in either. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I think the stakes issue too in wrestling in particular is kind of one of the results of the WWE slash F ultimately winning out because I think that Vince McMahon, you know, going back to the early to mid eighties during his takeover, like he was really, really good at building the WrestleManias and, you know, creating the Survivor Series to kind of knock out uh, to knock out Starcade and putting on these really, really big shows that were spectacles because of the star power. But it's like championship stakes have never really historically been necessarily what was over in the WWE. And now that wrestling effectively is the WWE to some degree, I think that's that's an industry change that's a result of that. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. And and what's interesting about, and this is something I have a friend, Kyle, who does not like wrestling. And his problem was always that everything ended in the ring. And that is actually something that superhero comics have figured out how to get around, which is that the make the people themselves have interior lives. So um, for those who haven't read, you really should. The Vision by Tom King. Tom King's run on The Vision is maybe the best. I honestly think it's the best comic run since, like, Batman year one. It's that level of good. And the most important thing to me in that is the scene or the scene, the, the panel where Vision is taking a call from his wife about his, that he created. That's a whole different thing um, about their son getting in trouble at school. And he is fighting this giant monster and he's at work. That's all it is. It is just a job. And I think that when we, it's again, it's about not accepting that kayfabe. We all are aware of the kayfabe of the things we're watching, but we've not figured out how to accept them. Where comic says like, this is what life would really be like if you were a superhero who really was completely invulnerable and didn't have to worry about things. You would have mundane shit happening while you were doing these impossible tasks that we could never imagine doing. I think that, that is something that is uh, it points right at the influence of like Venture Brothers recently as a show over the last 15 years where like Venture Brothers is literally about everything but the adventures to the point where they did one episode where they just did a, the middle part of an adventure as a gag. You know what I mean? Because yes. So, it, but it, yeah, that is definitely sort of a question that's been coming up more and more. And I mean, even when you, uh, like I, I recently started playing WWE 2K18 and like three quarters of the time in the game is walking around backstage uh, trying to win the approval of backstage producers. You know? <laughs> so it, it's interesting how you talked earlier about kind of the, the wrestlefication of, of the world over the last decade or so. But it, it's also just sort of the... Um, the, the, the flip view of everything that, you know, not looking at the super, you know, it used to be the superhero doing the superhero stuff was what was cool, you know, because that was exceptional in our compared to our mundane lives. But now it's like, we can do so much with like our phones that really most of those classic superpowers are kind of lame. So now it's more about the, the day-to-day trials and tribulations and headaches of being a superhero rather than it is about being a superhero you know yeah it's there's there's very little that is super about being a superhero and superhero comics have accepted that that 
it is a choice. We are a country and a cult. I, I would let's say a country than a culture that is afraid to make definitive choices. And superhero comics have large and comics in general have largely become about either telling stories that don't get to be told otherwise or telling the stories that everybody lives but don't have these heightened senses of reality or stakes that like is it more important to save the world or make sure your kid doesn't get in trouble at school like it is an actual thing that you have to think about on some level even if it's fantastical for you to have been a person who would save the world and i i think that structurally there are so few things that resemble wrestling and professional politics and comics that it is difficult to find these models for change. But I don't know if you can really apply either of those. Like how do you give wrestlers interior lives that people actually care about? And how do you get people to actually accept in professional politics um, as opposed to amateur politics, like student <laughs> government. I mean, um, politics. and I think <laughs> it, it, electoral politics more than professional politics because everything involves politics, but that we are actually changing people's lives by the laws we enact. Like, can we ever, or are we going just, just continue to look into escapism? Like, is that, do we ever get past that? It's the lack of uh, correlation between the stakes and our feelings about the stakes. Like in wrestling, you said things are relatively low stakes, but ideally if wrestling is uh, executing itself well, you care about those stakes. And in, in, in electoral politics, I think that it's, you, you want to appreciate the gravity of the stakes, but you don't want to get excited for them. And I think unfortunately, um, the political narrative increasingly is about exciting people about the stakes, not making people appreciate the gravity of the stakes. My policy is the best policy because we're the most enthusiastic about it. And it's like, no, your policy is the best policy because the least amount of people die. Yeah, like politics should never be about uh, riling people up. Or, I mean, I guess it relies on people being riled up to some degree, but I, I think that anything... Well, it's because it's a horse race. Our use of proxy for confrontation has killed us as a society kind of now i don't want to i don't want to sound like a heel here like i don't want to sound like sam punk and, and donald trump <laughs> but there are real issues with our society that we just don't address that comics have like comics are extremely subversive and and like I said, tell stories that don't get to be told anywhere else on these grand scales. One of my favorite comics of the last couple of years was um, about Canada going to war with the United States. And it was really fucking dark. I think a Canadian made it, which made it even more disturbing. <laughs> but it really, like, it really got into what it means to be be Canadian and that's not something I think about we are afraid of stakes but at the same time I think we want escapism and we don't look for it just in wrestling we look at for like the way comedy has evolved um because like what I think is interesting when you listen to like uh Mark Marin, who actually does wrestling now he's in glow so it's not wrestling um or it's a great show actually yeah great show is that um 
and I, I think we've talked about this uh, off mic before. Uh, the the structure of wrestling has the same structure as jokes. It is a lot of setup, punchline, and anticipation. And, and oh, absolutely. And I, I think yeah, it goes back to this this fundamental idea of like community versus individualism. That like ideally, it's about collaboration. It's about building something out of nothing together and allowing your scene partners basically everybody everybody should have equal ownership of it even if someone's steering it a certain direction it's about uh saying like yes to things rather than no so if someone says um you know uh here's your cat you don't say that's not a cat it's an elephant because then you've just broken that person's reality so it's about working together to create a reality um out of thin air and at least back in the day with wrestling up through the you know, 80s and even 90s to some degree, you know, and wrestling was itself more improvisational. That was definitely the case. It was like, you know, you would have just kind of like a fishbone, just like at the beginning of an improv game. They say, okay, you know, we need a place, we need an occupation, and we need an adjective or whatever. It was the same deal. It's like, okay, uh, like he's the baby face, he's the heel, and uh, you stole his girlfriend or whatever. And then, you know, professionals would just go and they would go out there and they would trust each other and they would be able to collaborate and, uh, when someone was struggling to find the next line, you know, you step in and help them with it. Same deal in wrestling. So, I mean, wrestling and uh, improv definitely used to be, once again, almost the same thing. I don't know that it's the degree that that true uh, anymore. Comedy has actually gotten both better and a lot worse. Like comedy movies aren't made anymore, essentially, at, almost at all. And no. when they are, it's <laughs> no. literally Will Ferrell movies. Like literally, I think he's yeah, Judd Apatow in some way, some form or fashion. Yeah, and even his are not straight comedies in a traditional sense. Usually, they're usually I don't want to say like meditations on things but they're long enough to be fucking meditations they're all like six hours long meditations on being a middle-aged cool guy they have focused on the interior lives of people and and, and the reason we keep bringing this up and the reason i keep bringing this up is because we're eventually going to get to um the lost generation of writers is that am i saying that correctly because you know much better than uh, i am uh than i do about about this but those people have interior lives the problem for them is that their lives are entirely on the interior. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that's a good generalization. So, so, so I guess to clean up your, your nomenclature, to clarify, I guess like lost generation generally refers to the generation of American authors who, you know, came of age right around World War I. Uh, many of the male members were, had, had served to some degree. And that generation of American intellectuals and artists felt generally disaffected by the, the, the course of world events following the First World War. And many of the intellectuals actually left the U.S. and um, tooled around Europe for, for the better part of a decade. Um, and uh, so, so like uh, folks like, uh, like uh, uh, Fitzgerald, F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, Hemingway, of course, um, and then also like, even though he was not an expat, he stayed in the U S like I would even group Faulkner was like a contemporary of theirs in terms of time. So when, when I say lost generation, I guess, yeah, that generation of American authors. And I guess most accurately, when you say lost generation, you're talking about expats as well. Yeah. I thought when you said you were going to correct my nomenclature that, um, you were going to say it's not interior lives. It's another thing. Uh, cause I, I think. I think we are not introspective in our politics or in our wrestling. Oh, no, 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 
that. Honestly, which is weird to say, because I'm not expecting like navel gazing in, in my politics or in my wrestling. But there is something that's been entirely lost. When you watched Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage fight over Elizabeth, it had emotional resonance because they felt like that was a thing that, less so that it felt like it was a thing that was really happening, than it felt like they had felt those emotions before in a real way. Absolutely. They had felt those emotions before in a real way, and they could finally act it out in a simple, easy to understand, easy to solve the problem, quote unquote, situation, you know, in a world where they could just solve problems with simple, direct conflict. And that's not the reality of the real world. So when you talk about like modernist stuff, like I think of like uh, Quentin Compson in The Sound and the Fury, like uh, I'm going to... Drop some spoilers here on the end of the Sound of the Fury. So if you want to hit that fast forward two minutes button, if you uh, if you're if you're holding off to uh, to learn about what happens to Quentin, so uh, fast forward. So anyway, at the end of the book, Quentin kills himself, right? Because uh, because there's just so much going on in his head. <laughs> I, I don't mean to laugh at suicide. To be clear, <laughs> sorry. No, 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 no. Uh, so uh, well, I, I just don't want to drop spoilers on people in the middle of. Yes, you know, I, I don't know if they haven't gotten around to reading one of the most famous books in ever published in English. Yeah, so you were you were saying the reason he um, kills himself is because he's too much going on in his head and he can't deal with it. Yeah, the, he lives in a world where action doesn't feel possible. And you talk about Hogan and Savage as a classic conflict of of jealousy and of envy um, and of feeling confused about stuff and just wanting to be able to solve that conflict in a simple way. And that's possible in the world of wrestling because you can go have a wrestling match where you bounce off ropes and jump off of things. Uh, whereas, you know, in the real world, in the kind of heady world of the modernists, um, there's nothing that can be done because they appreciate, you know, well, if I try to solve this problem with violence, that'll only beget more violence. Or even if I solve this problem with violence, I will still feel broken on the inside. Uh, whereas in wrestling, it, it, those issues are not there. It's like, if I solve this problem with violence, then I've solved the problem and we'll all be happy. Yeah, it's, it is. And I think it's also, it's not just to blame uh, politics or uh, wrestling. It's also the Disneyfication of the world uh, in terms of the way that we ingest narrative. We have, I have not read these books because I'm not well read. <laughs> But uh, some of them are a slog. Most of them. Are I was going to say they are, uh, I, as I understand, because I, I tried reading it would James Joyce that that's that's him, right? James Joyce. Would he be considered uh, Irish author? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. He's definitely, definitely. I mean, most people would say him in the same breath as, as Faulkner. Definitely very similar styles. But I mean, Joyce is like uh, stream of consciousness stuff. Like That's what I was going to say. It is exceedingly abstract relative to uh, especially like um and please correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. Like uh, the more romantic styles of writing, the more like um, I read a lot. I don't know what you consider Dickens, but I read a lot of Dickens. And although sure. it made me want to throw up just as much <laughs> as reading James Joyce, James Joyce made me want to throw up because there was a lot of things coming at me at once. Mm-hmm. I, I I just wanted to throw up on Dickens because I hated it so much. Uh, Dave, as sure. Dave can attest, because I wanted to kick out of a class for how much I hated Dickens. Yeah, everybody, you know, you you've all everybody's heard someone make the Dickens was paid by the word argument. I've heard Nick make the like twenty five minute long version of the Dickens yeah. was paid by the word argument. I don't give a fuck 
how he puts the goddamn butter on the goddamn roll. I don't want to talk about that. Um, but no, I, I hear what you're saying, though, because it's like, once again, to compare the two, so like in the world of Joyce, once again, you're being forced to grapple with things in a way that makes you appreciate that everything's really complex, and most problems, maybe, aren't genuinely fully solvable in a way that's really satisfactory and doesn't leave us feeling bummed out in some way. Where, whereas, you know, in the world of Dickens, it's like the, you know... He, he is rich at the end. You know what I mean? That the problems are suddenly solved. It's like Scrooge is dead uh, and, and, you know, nobody cares. But, oh, wait a minute. No, he's not. He's still alive and there's time to fix it. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, once again, it, it's the same. It's, you know, things being solved too easily in a way that is, is not realistic or doesn't jive with our real world, such as, like, say, wrestling or Dickens. And then there's, you know, the the kind of Joyce or Faulkner perspective or the kind of modernist perspective where they're like, you know, we just, we maybe can't solve these problems, but it's, it, we really have to grapple with them. And I think what you're saying about politics to some degree is we need that perspective of being ready to grapple with things uh, versus, you know, trying to solve them uh, maybe in expedient and simplistic and bombastic fashion. Yeah. And, and to go back to the, the clips we used, um, actually less so Trump than Punk. Punk thinks, like I said, that if Vince McMahon would just listen to him, he'd be a billionaire. And I think that we accept more readily these easily digested things not because we're lazy but because we're tired as like and i think that has become um manifest in the the way that we have kind of went whole hog for tv over film like even our films are basically tv shows but two and a half hour tv shows that attach uh, who have an episode coming out every six months and i i feel like um, there's the, the medium is the message, um, which is a part of a larger thing. The guy who wrote it, his name I'm blanking on, um, in it, he talks about the ideas of, of hot and cold medias, essentially, um, passive ones like television, um, consume you and ones that are more like cinemas where you have to physically go to a theater, sit by yourself you're in a room, you're focused on one thing, and that's the only thing that's going on. It's the only thing that's going on, going on for two and a half hours. We have, when people say we have shorter attention spans, that's what they mean. They don't mean that, like, we can't focus on things. It's that we have to focus on 15 things at once. And I feel like that's part of why we don't have these the ability to look at complexity because there's so much information coming at us at the same time that it's really difficult to remember all of the storylines for Braun Strowman, let alone like the effect that the most recent healthcare like change to the to Obamacare will have for people. Like it is really hard to do those things. And we just don't have I, we don't there there is a a a, uh, a predilection towards uh the easy way out i guess easy way out makes it sound like i don't know but i don't mean it the easy way out. i mean the like the simple because it's not easy it's hard it sucks it sucks to keep 
eating gruel every day but like it's it's exceedingly simple to do so (laughs) and i i feel like um we are afraid of having to sit like we said with our thoughts and i i feel like that is um what the lost generation because i i actually do know this a little bit better than uh, I, I've led on the ideas that are expressed in these are ideas of people who, like you said, have been through real shit. Like they are ideas that like, there's the idea of being woke in modern society. And I don't think they were, I, I, I I'm sure you could find a bunch of said that they are not woke by modern standards, but by their standards, they were incredibly awoken to the ideas that would eventually lead to the modern conceptions of wokeness. Obviously, there's a much a much larger, I, I want to say this, a much larger contingent of yeah, um, Black voices, of, of Latino voices, of, of Asian voices. There are uh, uh, queer voices that, like, played a much bigger role in the, like, actual content that fills in those spaces. But guys like Faulkner and Joyce, and it was largely men, as I understand it, right? Or where are there are a lot of women authors that I don't know about from this generation that have similar impacts in terms of, uh, and obviously I don't think they would be in war the same way that uh, um, a male, their male counterparts would be. They'll correct me if I'm wrong. So, yeah, I mean, there was like, uh, you know, Gertrude Stein and say like Alice B. Toklas and stuff. And they were definitely, you know, figures in the, the, the Parisian counterculture or lost generation expat movement and stuff. But I mean, the literary establishment, uh, unfortunately, until pretty recently was, you know, dominated by those, those dead white males. So if I, if I disproportionately talk about them, I apologize, but I happen to have uh, gone to school or been a, and studied a literature curriculum that was a, a, a firmly uh, grounded in dead white males. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's that's part of we've been told stories that are we have been told stories of triumph since the time we were kids, and they're almost always centered around white men like doing something spectacular and solving all of the world's problems. And even when there's someone who based on context couldn't possibly be a white man, like say Jesus Christ, we make him a white man. Well, it's way easier. If he looks like us, that's all we care about. And and I think what um, the last generation of writers and, and artists, and, and not just the last generation of artists, but uh, the, the kind of, um, I guess the abstract expressionists, they saw the war period both war periods both the 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 first world war then the interwar period and then the world war ii and the the very beginning of the post-war period all saw saw all saw this um this like split it's a very specific split it's um there is a exhibition i think it was in 1946 called advancing american art and um they bought the U.S. government bought like fifty thousand dollars worth of art. It wasn't just abstract expression; it was also like Georgia O'Keeffe, which I don't. If you haven't seen a Georgia O'Keeffe painting, look it up, and you'll understand why it might be slightly controversial. Um, uh, I think Georgia O'Keeffe was always the classic sense of uh, if you got it, you did, and if you didn't, you didn't, and like it worked on both levels or anywhere in between. Yeah. Um, but no, there this deeply subversive art was co-opted by Ameri- the American government in the, the late 
1940s, in the second half of the 1940s, directly post-war at the beginning of the Cold War, as a way to say, listen, guys, we're not all assholes. We got some pretty cool art stuff going on. And the response was not good. Um, When people talk about the NEA, they're talking, yes, they're talking about people like uh, Robert uh, Maplethorpe. Absolutely. But they're also talking about this specific exhibition, which like fundamentally changed the way we fund art in this country. There was such a rejection of what's essentially this like, uh, and and I, I wrote this beforehand, so if it sounds a little scripted, um, although it seeks to evoke the same kind of emotions, it approaches the concept of engaging with the audience on a visceral level from an entirely contradictory way. It is almost completely unconstructed beyond its existing on a canvas and not in the ether, as opposed to the wholly fabricated concept of professional wrestling. Essentially, what I'm saying there is that when Jackson Pollock painted his strip paintings, he literally just like had a canvas on the floor and was just throwing shit and seeing what worked, which was the whole point of the thing where wrestling does that as a means to an end. That was the means and the end. And I think there's no narrative to it, really. There is the narrative of Jackson Pollock's life that brought him to the point where he thought the drip paintings were a good idea, but there's not this narrative about the painting itself. And I think we want and we need these narratives about the politicians we see and about the wrestlers we see and the wrestling storylines that we see that has has seriously damaged our ability to think not just abstractly in terms of like math and science but also about our place in the world community and our places individually within the larger community of each other yeah definitely it's it's easier to hide like we keep saying right in the in the kind of escapist idea that, that these things are easy to solve it's like the Pollock thing, it, it challenges you like you, you know, the, the more than asking you to look at every splatter, the painting is, is begging you to ask, what was this guy thinking? What was this guy feeling? Instead of just like, you know, generally, um, like, let's, let's say a more representational, like, a am thinking of like a Northern Renaissance painting of like some farmers, you know, uh, tying up wheat in a field or whatever, like, you know, the paintings about wheat in the field. Whereas the Pollock work challenges you, you have to do some processing to think about what the painting's about. And we as human beings are uh, cognitive misers, as they say, right? We, we don't want to think. Our brains want to do as little work as possible. Yeah, and it's important to understand the, um, the links between uh, – well, it's basically, as I understand it, it's Impressionism begot Cubism, essentially, which then begot um, – abstract expressionism in other words what we went from was these renaissance paintings you're talking about to impressionism which was the impression of someone who was almost like someone was describing a renaissance painting to you and then we went well how do you deconstruct that a little bit more and that's how you got like these quintessentially um uh, representative artists like like picasso who like Decon- Guernica is maybe the one of the the most important painting of the modern age. Um, it is this grotesque version of the bombing of Guernica, I, I believe. I, I <laughs> if not, I'm going to be editing this out. <laughs> um, 
But it is, a, it is an extremely representative painting and a beloved painting in Spain, but it's an extremely representative painting of how he was feeling and how people in Spain were feeling about what was going on when that painting was made and what it was depicting. It is not a like lifelike recreation of that incident. Like at all. It's literally like just a bunch of ab- not quite abstract figures. They're still instantly recognizable figures, but they're they're deconstructed. And wrestling and politics don't they do lend themselves to deconstruction, but the people who enjoy them, who watch them as sport, don't want that. And it's really hard to make them want that. And 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 I like I guess that's how you get a guy who's a WWE Hall of Famer as president. <laughs> what essentially happened, uh, like we've said over and over again, is um, we, the Cold War, um, which which we're going to get into more next episode because a uh, spoiler alert that is next episode, which will be two weeks from now because uh, we're going to do this every other week. What the cold we had very, very, very specific choices to make as a country during the Cold War, and all of them were the kind of professional wrestling storyline choices that if you watch Raw week to week, week make you want to rip your hair out. Because, like, like you said, um, when you play WWE. E2K18, you spend half your time running around trying to impress authority figures. And we kind of have fetishized that, which is like why professional wrestling is now having this weird resurgence again. And it's based a lot around like Shane McMahon and Daniel Bryan fighting over who's the most righteous authority figure on the show. And, and it is not even bad per se, but it's the it's and it, because it's the only story they tell. We have they only tell stories where authority figures mess with. I, I don't even know how to describe it, but authority figures stack the deck or yeah, try to stack the odds against somebody. But it's it's even weirder. Not to go on a total tangent here. It's like they've just lost their their groundedness to the point where it's like Daniel Bryan. And Shane McMahon, it's like I, when they did the, um, the 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 guest referee bit at the last pay per view and stuff, it was just like both of them seemed like dicks for different reasons. At the end, it was like at the end you could have put down a T chart or a double T chart, and we're like, here's three ways that Shane McMahon did the right thing. Here's three ways that Shane McMahon did a bunch of bullshit that was not the right thing. Here's three ways Daniel Bryan did the right thing. Here's three ways he did a bunch of bullshit that wasn't the right thing. And it's like they've as much as that's like what we talk about wrestling being, it's like they have lost it or at least to some degree. And I think when we talk about just like wrestling being less compelling, it's partially that authority figure loop that you're talking about. And it's just partially this whole, just like, you know, what what are we supposed to be rooting for here? (laughs) Yeah. In a literal sense, uh, not to get too into the weeds on what the current storyline is, but sure. Daniel Bryan is a beloved anti-authority figure. He is now teaming up more or less, though I think there's a lot more nuance to what's going on with two other anti-authority figures uh, by the name of Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn. But by almost, yeah, by almost any reasonable definition. Or whiny, or whiny lion heels. But they are right. 
Shane McMahon, the ultimate authority figure on the show, there's literally this stupid distinction between general managers and commissioners. So the general manager answers, who is Daniel Bryan, answers to Shane McMahon, who is the commissioner and a member of the McMahon family, the idiot family of of Vince McMahon that CM Punk mentioned earlier. What I guess my question is, and I, I don't think we have the ability to like look into the actual production and say, oh, this is why it's happening. But how much of that is the fact that it's just you book the Gagne boys to be champion because, you know, they won't leave the territory. And how much of it is this, like, what's essentially a fetishization of authority that kind of, like, calms us? Like, in terms of our entertainment, we are obsessed with shows like Undercover Boss and The Reason Donald Trump is President, uh, The Apprentice. Like, we are obsessed with these, like, they're not even aspirational reality television. They're literally... No, it's really sad if you think about it because the idea is like, I hope my boss or I want to put faith that the boss class are uh, are so smart and so powerful that we can't possibly fail as a society because the bosses are so smart. But is that a lack of confidence uh, uh, in ourselves as like people? Or is it literally just like... It just seems because that's the one that trips me up. Is it is it a genuine like feeling of hopelessness manifesting itself as uh, shitty votes against your own well being, or is it like actual like animus towards people and a wanting to see other people suffer worse than your suffering? I think to get back to what we said earlier, I guess it's about just how you think that how you identify what the problems are and how you feel the problem should be addressed. And, and it's, I guess what's been in our country since the beginning, which is this idea of collective action versus rugged individualism. Right. And I I think that's um, as good a place as any to stop. uh, Cause I think, uh, and we'll get into it next episode. uh, That's what the cold war is about is, I listen, I'm pro America in the Cold War thing, but <laughs> in the you're not you're not Crusher Khrushchev, you're not a you're not a Russian turncoat sympathizer. I'm I'm glad to hear that, Nick. I'm glad I am not uh not not podcasting with Tommy Scum. But Crusher Khrushchev had some good points. That's all I'm saying. That is all <laughs> I'm saying, and that is next week's episode. Um Dave, thank you so much. Oh, yeah, of course. We will be back two weeks from now uh, with uh, our episode on the Cold War, which we're also uh, – I will also be trying to, though I don't want to make any promises, uploading a video companion to this. Uh, I, I I may do it. I'm going to see how much work it is, honestly. Um, but uh, I, you will definitely see smaller segments of this. Uh, and especially the, as we get into the more topic specific episodes, uh, snippets of those uploaded as videos. Um, so yeah, uh, a lot of stuff to look forward to. And uh, for those of us, those of us, those of you listening uh, on the let's not talk about work feed, I will be having a, a, a new guest. Uh, it will not be Dave, uh, <laughs> though I will be having Dave. Yeah. Sorry, Dave. Uh, I will be having Dave back on the show at some point in the, the relatively near future, because I only have so many friends and the only people allowed on that show are friends. So, <laughs> um, you got to put like a shock collar on me. And anytime that I bring up wrestling, it just, bzz, 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 I promise I can talk about other things. 
<laughs> we'll see about that. Um, so again, thank you, Dave. And uh, uh, until next time, uh, this has been How Wrestling Explains the World.